Portland, Southern Wessex, the year 789. A sail is spotted upon the horizon. It actually means little to the local population. Some, no doubt, making a living from fishing and other seaborne pursuits. Others from the fertile land further from the shore. After a while, the crew of the vessel make landfall unopposed. Apparently they, or people very much like them, had travelled to the West Saxon port innumerable times before, either to sell their wares or barter for a small slice of the wealth of Wessex. Currently under the hegemony of the great king Offa of Mercia. Yet still a powerful and wealthy state in its own right, long profiting from the lucrative continent-spanning trade network of the Franks and their northern clients in Frisia. Those newcomers, however, had come from lands further to the north, outside of the traditional trade network of the last century and more. Though their tongue was unmistakably foreign, curiously, with a little effort, it could be understood by the locals, hinting at a common heritage in the Germanic past of the migration period a few centuries before. Nevertheless, almost immediately, it became apparent that these men at least at the present moment, were no traders. Perhaps the serpent-headed prow of their vessel gave them away. Perhaps it was the weapons they carried and mail adorning their bodies. These men came not as traders, but as pirates. What happened next isn't exactly clear, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle being tantalisingly tight lips as usual. Though, by day's end, the local Shire Reeve, who had come down to the shore, either to discuss terms with the pirates or barter with them, lay dead on the beach, sliced down where he stood. The pirates, meanwhile, embarked on a vicious rampage around Portland, sacking and stealing, before making off with the wares that they and their kinsmen would previously have bartered for. Those sailors, of course, were Scandinavians. Possibly Norsemen, perhaps Danes, we can't be sure. But within just a handful of years, they, or men like them, were back, this time in the far north of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, sacking the famous monastery at Lindisfarne, the cultural heart of the Christianity of the north, dragging away the monks they found there into slavery and seizing anything of worth they could lay their hands on. To the abject horror of Christians from the Orkneys to Aquitaine, these newcomers were pagan. Not only did they show absolute disregard for the sanctity of Christian sites, a given for almost 200 years, but as time would tell, and as they realised just how lucrative such sites could be, they would actively target them. For the anonymous scribes of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, perhaps writing with the power of hindsight, the Lindisfarne raid had been preceded by the darkest of portents. Immense whirlwinds over the North Sea, flashes of lightning, famine and great dragons circling overhead. The long-forgotten cousins of the Anglo-Saxons had returned and they sensed weakness. The attacks of the late 8th century were just harbingers of events to come. It would be at least 300 years until the floodgates were closed off again, and after they were, the world had been transformed like never before. Even before the raid on Lindisfarne, the great king Offa, second in power only to Charlemagne amongst the Christian monarchs of Western Europe, had set up river defences to ward off against piratical attacks. Likewise, the emperor Charlemagne made similar moves, 
setting up intricate coast guard stations on his southern and northern river mouths to defend against increasingly daring Arab and Scandinavian pirates. In truth, by the late 700s, few in Western Europe would have predicted the impending storm coming their way. Charlemagne's vassal lords in Aquitaine even succeeded in defeating their first band of northern invaders in 799, executing several shiploads of pirates on the seafront as a warning to others who might try their luck. For the most part, by this time, the once fragmentary tribes that had taken over the lands of the Western Roman Empire during the migration period had settled down, adopted the religion of the Romans and even coalesced to a degree into large blocks of loosely unified states. A Carolingian Empire on the mainland and a Mercian hegemony in southern Britain. From around 675, great leaps forward had been made in Europe in terms of prosperity, with increased levels of centralisation and economic growth. By 800, the continent had arguably, for the most part, recovered from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, with rulers such as Charlemagne ultimately laying the foundations for the medieval European system that would follow some 200 years later. By the early 8th century, the barter system that had held sway since the fall of Rome had gradually evolved into a fully-fledged currency trade network, with goods and merchants travelling the entirety of Europe once more for the first time since the fall of Rome. On the mainland and in Britain, peasants and lords alike now wholeheartedly embraced the Christian faith of the Romans, even modelling their churches and public buildings on the still very visible ruins of the old world. Some, at least, had forgotten their own roots as a result. As before, during the Germanic past, the sea was still a sacred, ancient place, half remembered from the time of the old gods. Though now, those who had once venerated it were more often than not simply afraid. Germanic sea deities now having transformed to become Judeo-Christian spirits and demons. One place where the old ways had never truly been forgotten was Frisia, conquered fully by the Franks only in the early 8th century and still possessing many enclaves of pagans within its dense marshes and waterways. During the Carolingian restoration of the 8th century, these Frisians living on the edge of Christendom had acted as the main intermediaries between Scandinavia and Europe, ultimately becoming the beneficiaries of the burgeoning trade between North and South. Though Frisians were cousins of the Danes, they didn't have the same millennia-old shipbuilding tradition as the Scandinavians. Instead, they utilised hulks for sea journeys and cogs for their river systems, rather than clinker-built longboats. Whilst effective enough, these boats were nowhere near as advanced as those of the North, and consequently couldn't traverse the North Sea anywhere near as easily. By the time of the raid on Portland in 789, the most important trading centre in Northern Europe was the Frisian town of Dorestad, sitting on the crossroads of the old ways and the new. Close ties existed between Dorestad and the English port of Hamwich in Wessex, modern-day Southampton, and at Quentovich in Flanders. As the decades went on, these centres, not located particularly close to military bases of power, of course, became tempting targets. Unlike their southern neighbours, who, for the most part, simply didn't need ships to get around, Scandinavians had always been at home on the water. 
and as a wealth of archaeological, linguistic and literary evidence shows, they were obsessed with it. The inhabitants of Francia and Britain alike were about to find out just how problematic it could be to be prosperous. 300 years before, their own ancestors had once harassed the Roman world, ultimately destroying it and building again in their own image. Now, faced with their own barbarians from the north, the double-edged sword of prosperity that would haunt humans from the earliest civilizations to the present had turned against them. This was a trade network worth stealing from, and as the years would show, the northerners now had the means to do it. Ultimately, as always tended to happen during the early Middle Ages, the loose balance of power achieved by the Carolingians, and to a lesser extent the Mercians in the 8th century, remained fragile, and upon the deaths of the two great rulers, these states almost immediately began to fall apart. Even before they collapsed, however, out of the North Sea arrived a terrifying new adversary, an unwelcome throwback to their own less-than-perfect pasts. For now, at least, however, the larger states were generally seen as too difficult targets. Instead, softer ones would be chosen. By the late 700s, the Orkney and Shetland Islands were hit, being turned into regular pirate bases. In 795, the first attack on Ireland was directed at Lambie Island. These targets made sense, and seemed to be the result of a sort of intelligence network gathered over many years probably by traders. These were places of relative anarchy, where regional clan chiefs and innumerable high kings held sway. In short, it was a situation that could be perfectly exploited. At the same time, half a world away on the eastern shores of the Baltic Sea, similar bands of opportunists Spurred on, like their western counterparts, by a mixture of overpopulation, climate change in Scandinavia, such as had happened numerous times before, and an increasing centralisation of power, leading to less opportunities at home, they began to venture ever further into the river systems of Eastern Europe, ranging far and wide in the pursuit of wealth and power, and setting up the important trading town of Staraya Ladoga. Situated on the Volga River, Ladoga acted as a nexus of commerce, seeing ambitious and daring Swedes head all the way down the river into the Caspian Sea to make their fortunes. Utilising longboats, these men were able to move up the rivers, carrying their boats over impassable rapids to make it all the way through the river systems of Eastern Europe and towards the riches of the Islamic world. As time went on, other ports began to develop along the Baltic, such as at Holmgard, later known as Novgorod. The wealth accumulated at these ports then filtered back into Sweden, with tens of thousands of Islamic coins being discovered on Gotland and around Lake Malaren. These Swedish merchant princes, perhaps inheritors of the Vendel culture, the previous centuries, became especially accustomed to dealing with the various stepkhans living along the Volga River, who often acted as intermediaries between them and the Islamic world. The Volga Bulgars and the Khazar Khaganate, both having a long history of commercial activity with the great Islamic cities across the Caspian Sea, such as Hamadan in modern-day Iran, and even Baghdad, the once mighty capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. In Ireland and Eastern Europe alike, one of the primary sources of income was the sale of slaves, more often than not to Islamic buyers. Be it the Emirate of Cordoba in Spain or the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad. Though the Eastern Vikings who plied the Volga had originated mostly in modern-day Sweden, in the archaeological record, 
they are near indiscernible from their Western compatriots in Denmark and Norway. Little did they know it at the time, but those settlers and raiders, from Dublin to the Black Sea, were founding the first outposts of a brand new trade network, never before seen in Europe, which would bring goods from as far afield as Central Asia into Scandinavia and beyond. It was a system that would eventually not only incorporate the Carolingian trade network of the mainland, but supersede it. Centres such as Dublin and Hedeby fast becoming important trading centres to rival any set up by the Franks or Anglo-Saxons. One facet of life and one series of technological innovations united these men, the ships that they put to sea in. The longships. To those who manned them, these were living, breathing animals. An ancient gift from the spirit world, masterfully developed over millennia by successive generations of shipwrights. Curiously, little evidence of a sail exists before the 8th century. Scandinavians instead rowing into the open sea on vessels such as the Nidum ship, with little more than brute strength and faith in the gods to guide them. Though when a sail was added, likely as a result of contacts with the Franks and Frisians on their southern flank, it would change everything. The earliest evidence of a sail on a Scandinavian ship comes from the Tiangvidi stone on Gotland, dating to around 690. What had once been exceptionally well-built rowing boats, capable of sea travel, though dangerous at the best of times, were now, arguably, the greatest warships the world had ever seen. Completely mobile, capable of beaching anywhere due to their low and thin bodies, and absolutely unique to the fjords and archipelagos they sprung from. This is as much the story of those Scandinavian settlers, raiders and traders as it is of the ships that made their extraordinary expansion possible. By the early 20th century, the allure of the Viking past was very much in full swing. Archaeological discoveries in Scandinavia, such as the Gokstad ship in 1881, had inspired an entire new generation of researchers and amateur enthusiasts alike to look for their own finds. In 1904, not far from the location of the Gokstad vessel, at Slagen in Westfold, another discovery was made. Whilst the discovery of the Gokstad ship, dating from around 900, had electrified audiences from San Francisco to Paris upon its discovery in 1881, it was the excavation of this new site in 1904 that would contribute the most to our understanding of the longship, and in time would have the greatest impact upon the modern world. We know it as the Osseberg ship. And crucially for our story, it is the earliest intact vessel ever found, probably having been constructed around a century before the Gokstad. Unlike other sites, the Osseberg Mound had not traditionally been associated with the burial of ancient kings, though as soon as its intricately carved sternposts emerged out of its tomb of a thousand years, it became obvious that this site would change everything. Almost immediately, comparisons were made with existing examples of Viking art, from smaller archaeological finds, runestones, and even later carvings on church doors in the post-Viking age. Quite simply, these carvings are incredible, made by master craftspeople they perfectly exemplify the coalescing of the animal art style which once held sway over all of Northern Europe and the Eurasian steppe, and long-lasting Scandinavian shipbuilding traditions coming together to create something truly special.
radiocarbon dating has shown that the Osseberg ship was buried in around 834, though it was probably built around 30 years earlier, meaning it was on ships not too dissimilar to the Osseberg vessel 100 years before the time of the Gokstad ship that Viking sailors first set out from Scandinavia to raid the shores of Western and Eastern Europe. Quite remarkably, the ship remained mostly intact during its long incarceration underground, being shattered at some point by the earth above it, but not destroyed. Grave robbers seem to have got to the tomb at some points too, though thankfully much of the hall interred with the ship remains intact. These finds themselves arguably provide more information about the Viking Age than any other ship find in history. These ornately carved pieces of art hint at the way of life of these people, and the extreme power and wealth of the individual buried. This was certainly the tomb of royalty. Yet this was not the grave of a king. The grave houses two female bodies, one younger and one older. It has been surmised that the younger might have been a slave girl, ritually sacrificed alongside her master, thus bearing similarities with the 10th century Arab travel writer Ibn Fadlan's account of a boat burial along the Volga during the 10th century. Whilst the identity of the elder woman remains a mystery, many have suggested due to the sheer amount of wealth and the ornately carved ship itself, that she may have been a member of the prestigious Ingling dynasty who ruled over the region during the early Viking Age, potentially being Asa, the grandmother of Norway's first unifying king, Harald Fairhair. By 1926, using cutting-edge new preservation techniques, a reconstructed complete ship was finished leading experts to surmise that the Osseberg ship, rather than a functioning war vessel, may have originally been a royal yacht, intended for prestige voyages along the shore. In recent years, however, this has been taken into question, with new research suggesting that the ship had originally been made slightly differently to the reconstruction, and thus could have been seaworthy. It was on vessels not too dissimilar to these that Norsemen and Danes first arrived in Western Europe, and likely Swedes first traversed the river systems of the East. As the years went by and other discoveries began to be made, it was realised that the Osseberg vessel was part of a long tradition of shipbuilding, developing into ships like the Gokstad and the Tune, unearthed in Osvold in 1867, and dated to around 900. Unlike ships from the Mediterranean, and even from the Celtic Northwest, clinker-built Scandinavian ships rode the waves, going with the storm rather than against it. The ship would bend with the water, the tree it was built from caulking, yet holding fast, those who sailed it put their faith in its builders. The shell construction used in the calm seas of the Mediterranean simply would have broken up in the waves of the north. Each boat required one tree preferably oak, for the keel, and anywhere between 10 and 50 trunks for the rest of the ship. Green, young timber, rather than old, was preferred, in order to retain the natural strength and flexibility of the wood. The work was done quickly by experts, and didn't require a huge amount of manpower, like ships from the Mediterranean. During construction, each man focused on his small part of the hole, working on information passed down from generation to generation. The oldest complete vessel ever found in Norway dates to around 690, 
the Caval Sun ship, found in 1920, bears all the same hallmarks as the later vessels, though it remains unclear whether it had a sail. At some point during the 8th century, Norwegian ships had adopted the keel, a backbone for a ship. Ships like the Osseberg look like the Kvalsund, but are more intricately made, and with a keel and a sail. This technology was acquired by trial and error, life and death over many generations. If a ship went out with a certain type of keel and didn't come back, they would try it a different way next time. A hundred years later, the design had been perfected so much that it would lead to conquests all over Europe. After that, distinct models of ships were made, large cargo vessels to take traders and explorers to the edge of the known world and beyond, to North America. And eventually, two centuries after their ancestors first set out at the turn of the 8th century, they would form the largest state in Europe in the east, and in the west, they would conquer England. By the middle of the 9th century, the once mighty Carolingian Empire had fragmented into a number of feuding states. To the north, in equally war-torn Britain, Scandinavians now held sway in the islands of the far north. They infested the river systems of Ireland just as they did in Francia, and now they even threatened the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, once held by the great Mercian king Offa now divided once more. Though with a new kingdom in the driver's seat, Wessex. Though they hailed from disparate lands, the Scandinavian newcomers were all united by one facet of life, the sea. By the 800s, after millennia of innovation, simply no one else in Europe could compete with their ships. They were cheap to make, relatively easy to build for those who knew how, and didn't require vast resources and manpower like the far larger shell-constructed ships of the Mediterranean. Quite simply, by the mid-9th century, Scandinavians had absolute control over the northern seaways. Being able to traverse any coast of Europe and most of its river systems, Viking fleets could move three or four times faster than any force on land, almost always meaning that they had the element of surprise. This was an advantage that they would continue to wield until the mid-12th century. By the 850s, as wealth and rumour of more from both the east and the west poured into Scandinavia, the small squadrons of ships previously seen began to give way to impressive fleets of close to a hundred vessels, led by increasingly legendary sea kings, wielding just as much power as their liege lords at home. The age of the Vikings had well and truly begun. Daring raids such as those conducted by Bjorn Ironside and Haston went as far afield as the Mediterranean. Both Paris and London were attacked unsuccessfully. Dorestad and Hamwich weren't so lucky, the former in particular being decimated year after year. And in the east, Swedish Vikings, now having built trading settlements and fortresses along the Volga and the Dnieper rivers, subjugating and incorporating the local Slavs into their vast economic network in the process, raided as far south as the Eastern Roman capital of Constantinople, trying their luck in 860 against a weakly defended northern part of the great city, but ultimately being driven back by a 9th century weapon of mass destruction, developed during the Byzantines' apocalyptic struggle with the Caliphate during the previous centuries. Greek fire. 
This was one of the most effective sea powers that the Scandinavians had ever come up against, ultimately sparking off a centuries-long obsession with the metropolis they knew as Miklagard. This was an obsession which would eventually see the Vikings of the East and their increasingly important Slavic subjects incorporated into the cultural sphere of the Eastern Romans. As the years went by, more and more Swedes, often known as Varangians, would shift their operations from the trade route along the Volga into the Caspian Sea and look towards the collection of waterways that eventually fed into the Dnieper and on into the Black Sea and the ever-present Allure, the great city of Constantinople. As the century progressed, the East would provide an entirely different set of challenges to those encountered in the West. Here lay a land of winding river systems and impassable rapids, rather than storm-ridden open seas. Like Ireland in the far west, Roman rule and the urban institutions that came with it had never extended into the riverways of Eastern Europe, meaning, like the Irish, the Slavic peoples that these Swedish Vikings came into contact with, though just as effective in war individually, were less socially and economically developed than the Franks and the Anglo-Saxons, who could organise themselves into substantial armies and to a certain extent had begun to see themselves as successors to Rome's imperial legacy. Though no literary tradition existed to the north of the Black Sea, as was inherited from the Romans in the west, the Scandinavian impact on these lands was just as great. And in time, during the age of Oleg, the Swedish Vikings, now known as the Rus, laid the foundations for a centralised state. A feat never accomplished in Ireland, whose Norse settlers remained divided into numerous economically powerful yet politically fragile city-states. Despite the great differences in geography and society within the far-flung lands claimed by Scandinavians during this time, the ships that they travelled on to trade and to raid were not too dissimilar. During these early years, perhaps being multi-purpose vessels, somewhere between the Osserberg and Gokstad ships. Other good examples being in Ladby and Hedeby in Denmark. These were boats built by regional Jarls to assert their own power, to transport their people and to serve any purpose they needed them to. By the end of the century, ambitious regional men utilising vessels such as the Gokstad ship, had conquered vast swathes of Western European land. The likes of Ivar the Boneless, Halfdan of the Wide Embrace, Ubba the Duke of the Frisians, Guthrum, King of East Anglia, and Rollo the Walker, becoming kings in their own right in their newly conquered lands. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had been brought to the verge of oblivion, with only Wessex and fragments of the others clinging on. In Francia, practically the entire northern coastline had been claimed, and in the east, with the capture of the important town of Kiev, the disparate trading towns of the Swedish slaver princes had began to develop into a large, centralised state, that of the Rus. Many of these sea kings and slaver princes had initially left their homelands in order to escape the growing power of centralising monarchs. And in the wake of their absence, the power of kings grew. The first of these unifying monarchs was from Norway, a member of the prestigious Ingling dynasty, hailing from the same lands that produced the Gokstad and Osseberg ships. Harold Fairhair's power rested on the fact that he was relatively lenient towards regional powers, effectively ruling as the first amongst equals. To the south, however, in Denmark, when a strong, centralising dynasty arose a generation later, no quarter would be given to ambitious Vikings. By the early 10th century, and the rise of Gorm the Old, the age of independent sea kings in Denmark was coming to a close. Ambitious Viking chieftains 
sailing on ships such as the Gokstad and the Tune, while successful abroad, were a threat at home to Gorm's own ambitions to curb the power of local elites. The Jelling dynasty had grown rich over the decades, having gained control over Hedeby, the most important market town of the north, and thus gaining a stranglehold over the riches that came flooding in from the east and the west. Similar trading centres existed at Oslo and Lake Malaren, respectively providing similar power to Norse and Swedish kings. Partly as a result of this cracking down on local chieftains, and because of the lucrative trade network now flourishing in Northern Europe, the old multi-purpose ships would eventually give way to at least two kinds of vessel. Rather than all-purpose ships, these were either one of two types, either becoming longer for war or becoming wider for trade. Centralising dynasties such as the Jelling in Denmark and the Ingling in Norway no longer needed ships to do both. As far as later Icelandic writers such as Snorri Sturluson were concerned, writing in the early 13th century, it was the cracking down of these powerful monarchs that would lead his ancestors to emigrate to Iceland. Perhaps some of the earliest settlers in the late 9th century arrived on similar vessels to the Gokstad ship, though as time went on, a new, wider, stouter ship began to be used. We know it as a canar, and though examples of it exist from the late 10th century, at sites such as Klarstad and Askakar, it was almost certainly used before this time, perhaps developing in parallel to the more famous warships. Canars would be used for hundreds of years to come, as the primary trading vessel of the new Scandinavian trading system. Of course, not all Scandinavians were Vikings. The majority were probably traders, farmers and settlers. And by the 10th century, as a result of their cutting-edge maritime technology, coupled with their usurpation of the pre-existing European trade system, they could move cargo in a way that no one else could, and travel to new lands never before seen, significantly expanding their world in the process. For the most part, the ships they used were these, canars. Like their warlike cousins, they were much more efficient and wide-reaching than the Frisian boats that had come before them, and capable of carrying as much as 40 tonnes of cargo. As the years went by, ambitious sailors on canars, utilising time-honoured navigation techniques handed down from father to son over the long generations, discovered new lands never before seen by Europeans. Using landmarks, birds and even the stars to find their way, two vast new lands were discovered in the icy seas of the northern Atlantic both seeing colonisation attempts by hardy settlers. Initially, at least, these lands were only open to Scandinavians, though, as time went on, usually as the result of a merger of culture, such as in Normandy and in the Danelaw, other residents of Europe, such as the Franks and Anglo-Saxons, would eventually adopt the longship, and in time, gain access to the new Scandinavian trade system. If you can't beat them, join them. Where once Dorostad, Hamwich and Quintovich had held sway, now a century later, Hedeby, Dublin, Rouen and Jorvik were the new powerhouses. And as time went on, as evidenced by the Hedeby 3 ship, dating from around 1025, these canars became larger and larger. Following a silver shortage within the increasingly fragmented Abbasid Caliphate during the 10th century, along with another ultimately unsuccessful Rus' attack on Constantinople in 945, this time led by a ruler named Igor. Of course, 
claiming descent from the semi-legendary founder of Rus' power, Rorik. A new trade agreement was made with the Byzantine Empire, one that would see, once and for all, Varangian focus shift away from the Middle East and definitively towards the Eastern Orthodox world of the Byzantines. Over the next 50 years, Rus' society would begin a remarkable transformation from a coalition of loosely aligned chieftains to the largest state in Europe. It remains unclear, though probable as evidenced by Byzantine and Islamic sources, that by this time the Rus were still using longboats in the east. Unlike in the west, where the Catholic Christianity of Rome gradually began to take hold, with the first successful missionaries being adopted in the early 9th century, in the East, it was Orthodox Christianity and Eastern Roman institutions that would be adopted. Other changes were taking place too, ones that reflect the multi-ethnic makeup of the Rus' state. Unlike the trade agreement with Constantinople arranged in the previous century by Oleg, a large number of the Rus' signatories in 945 had Slavic names. Just like Scandinavians would eventually do in Ireland and had already done in Normandy, they were going native. Of course, Rus' ties with Scandinavia remained strong, with ambitious warriors still coming down from the north to pledge their allegiance to the Rus' princes in the search of riches and glory and occasional Rus' princes heading north to seek refuge at the courts of distant relatives, as well as to bolster their own armies for a return home. Though ever gradually, Slavic, steppe nomad and Byzantine influences began to seep in, superseding or amalgamating with Scandinavian ones. Changes were happening in the West too, as Scandinavians also gradually began to adopt Christianity. Hundreds of thousands of silver coins from England and France, taken as Danegeld or simply stolen during this time, reflect the great changes the trade routes had wrought on the lands the merchants and the Vikings had first sprung from, transforming Scandinavia and the adjacent territories into rich and prosperous lands, and arguably, for the first time in history, the focal point of Northern Europe. Though for the most part, Scandinavians weren't yet literate, employing foreign scribes to write for them, urban institutions and societal developments gradually began to take hold, particularly around leading royal families. Of course, the creation of warships didn't stop. If anything, by the 10th century, they became more effective, specialising above all else in battle. Quite understandably, the earliest finds of vessels made purely for war, and likely state-sponsored, come from the kingdom that would be the most powerful, and the one closest to the other European powers, Denmark. These were no longer vessels for colonisation and trade, as well as war. They were purely troop transports employed by kings. Times had also changed in Francia at the end of the 9th century, as the Carolingian dynasty of Charlemagne desperately clung on to its last shreds of land in West Francia. To the east, a new power was arising. A power that would inadvertently kick-start Denmark's rise to centralised powerhouse. Newly invigorated by Christian fervour, coupled with the military pedigree of their ancestors, a Saxon dynasty had arisen to power in the easternmost Carolingian lands, and by the 930s, these recent converts to Christianity had their northern cousins on their minds. In 934, hot off the heels of recent victories against the nomadic Magyars, who came sweeping into his lands from the east, the first native German king of East Francia, Henry the Fowler, riding at the head of his new elite cavalry force, raised in order to combat the Magyar threat, crossed over the Daneverk to ravage Jutland. 
The various regional kings and chieftains who held sway there, faced with overwhelming odds, pledged homage to the German king, accepting his demands to convert to Christianity and pay him tribute. At this time, Denmark, still largely fragmented, might have become yet another province in the gradually growing German Reich. Instead, a feared sea king arrived on the mainland from the Danish islands to force his will upon the region. Claiming descent from the legendary kings of the migration period, Gorm the Old was a devout pagan and a fearsome warrior lord. Utilising the fear and uncertainty aroused by Henry's campaign, Gorm was able to fairly quickly forge together the Danish people into one. Expel the incoming German priests back over the Daneverk, and perhaps most importantly for the longevity of his dynasty, seize control over the important trading hub of Hedeby. Over the next 40 years, Gorm, and ultimately his son and heir, Harold Bluetooth, would mould Denmark into the most powerful Scandinavian kingdom of them all. Though, of course, the independent sea kings didn't go down without a fight. In 1935, a farmer on the Danish island of Funen began digging into a large mound on his property. The site, previously thought to be little more than a natural hill overlooking the sea, turned out to be so much more. A great man had been buried there more than a thousand years before, and after two years of excavations, an abundance of grave goods were found in the mound. Scores of dogs, horses, and votive offerings, along with the impression of a fully intact longboat, interred by royal retainers to carry their lord to Valhalla. This was the burial of a powerful local king. Yet, curiously, only a few fragments of bones were found within the tomb, the rest having been hastily taken out of the site not long after it was initially buried. While the boat itself, very much in the same style as the Osseberg and Gokstad vessels, provides us with evidence that the same shipbuilding traditions of Norway were evident here too. For many researchers, it also marks the end of the age of independent sea kings in Denmark. A number of different interpretations exist to explain what happened at the Ladby Mount almost all of them involve the new paramount rulers of Denmark. Times had changed since this great man died, and this very visible symbol of the power he and no doubt his descendants wielded over the region didn't survive intact for long. His bones being removed from the site in the 10th century. By removing the deceased, and chopping up all of his grave goods into hundreds of pieces, the attackers dealt a great blow to the prestige of his heirs. An alternative explanation is that the man's remains were moved to a Christian gravesite, as Harold would do with Gorm's remains after his death in the late 950s. Times had changed during the 9th and early 10th centuries, with Scandinavians in the East and the West increasingly adapting to the geopolitical systems they found themselves embroiled in. Though sea kings still held sway in many areas throughout the Viking world, especially in Norway, where pedigree for kingship still meant that one had to have a successful career as a Viking under his belt, in Sweden, for example, still being almost entirely pagan, and would be for at least a century to come. The kings of Denmark and the princes of the Rus had empire on their minds. The new prince of the Rus, Svatislav, still resolutely a pagan and according to Byzantine sources, looking more like a steppe Khan than a Viking warlord, ravaged his way through the world of the East, decimating the trading centers of the previously all-powerful Khazar Khaganate, before finally being stopped by an imperial army led by the emperor John Tzmiskis. 
In Denmark, now increasingly influenced by the Etonian Germans to the south, Gorm's son, Harald Bluetooth, sought to extend his rule to Norway and along the Baltic coasts, utilising his stranglehold over trade in the region to construct huge fortifications and a navy of warships. Svatislav's successor, meanwhile, Prince Vladimir, still enjoying firm links and military support from Scandinavia, notably from Hakon Jarl, the de facto ruler of Norway in the wake of renewed Danish power, returned to Kiev to stake his own claims to power. Within a decade, in return for a marriage alliance with the Byzantines, he converted to Christianity. From this point on, Though the trade system along the Volga remained relatively influential in the region, the Abbasid Caliphate had already somewhat collapsed, and with it went the slave trade. Even before this time, Rus warriors had been serving in the Byzantine army as swords for hire. During the Emperor Nikephorus Phokas's reconquest of Crete in the 960s, for example, Rus mariners were the first to make landfall charging off their boats to attack the waiting Arabs on the shore. We don't know whether these were longboats, but it remains entirely possible. Eventually, during the time of Vladimir, men such as these would form the first detachments of the Varangian Guard, stalwart defenders of Constantinople until well into the 15th century. By 975, strong, independent Scandinavian kingdoms had been born, and in Denmark at least, the once independent-minded Vikings would attempt to become an empire. Harald Bluetooth had been a great king, utilising the groundworks laid by his father to forge a powerhouse of a realm. Yet even Harald's achievements pale in comparison to those of his son, Sven Forkbeard, and again by his son, Canute the Great. This was the time of kings, an era of Scandinavian supremacy over the Atlantic seaways, a time of conquest and of the great northern sea empire, the age of the dragon boats. <laughs> <laughs> 